0: Welcome back to What's the Point of the Midrash, the weekly podcast where we take a look at a rabbinic text and offer suggestions to answer the question, what's the point of the Midrash? My name is Rabbi Josh Huter, and this week we have a bonus one for you. As I've mentioned a few times, you don't just have collections of Midrash Rabbah on the Parsha, we also have collections on the five Megillot, those being Esther, Shir Hashirim, Root Echa, and Kohelet. And we read Kohelet Ecclesiastes on Sukkot, uh, Shabbat Cholamoid of Sukkot, or at least in many Ashkenazim communities. Uh, they don't all over the place, but since they do in mine, I figure it's appropriate enough to teach a midrash from Kohelet Rabbah, from Ecclesiastes Rabbah. And I'd like to do a midrash that I see quoted often in certain contexts, and I think it really requires a little bit more explanation because for my money, it's one of the most important midrashim as a source in rabbinic uh, texts of what philosophers might call a deontological approach to Torah and ethics, which is instead of saying, here are these great moral principles that you're supposed to follow, the main one is you follow the rules of the system. In the case of Torah, would be you follow the rules of God as opposed to other things. The question of morality in Judaism is well beyond anything we can cover in one podcast. But this Midrash is, I think, one of the primary texts when it comes to the deontological approach where God's rules matter more than everything else. The midrash that we're going to discuss is from Kohelet Rabba seven twenty five, and it's based off of the verse in Kohelet in Ecclesiastes seven sixteen Altehit Sadikhar harbei the Altitra Yoter, Lama Tishomem. Do not be overly righteous, and don't be over wise. According to one translation, why destroy yourself? Another translation says, "Or you may be dumbfounded." And it's an odd thing to find in a biblical verse to say, "Don't be too righteous, and don't be too wise." For what it's worth, before we get to the midrash, we have to point out that the next verse in Ecclesiastes 7:17 says, "Alatir shahar the Alti lama tamut Do not be overly wicked and don't be a fool, or you may die before your time. So before we go any further and discuss this, don't be overly righteous, the opposite is also true in terms of don't be overly wicked, that there's some, I guess, middle ground between righteousness and wickedness, but it's not like, oh, being righteous is bad, so let's go be wicked. Yeah, that's not what's going on here. Doesn't mean that alti tzadik harbe do not be overly righteous isn't a bit of a confounding statement in its own right that requires a little more explanation, and we find in Kohelat rabbis seven twenty five, alti what does it mean to uh, do not be overly righteous alti tzadik harbe mi bora echa don't be more righteous than your creator. Medaber b'Shaul, and this is said in the case regarding of King Saul. Dichtiv ayavo Shaul ad ir amalek vagomer. This is a reference to Shmuel Aleh, First Samuel, chapter fifteen. This, of course, is when King Saul was given the order to destroy the nation of Amalek and the King Agag and all of their stuff, and he doesn't quite do that, save some of the spoils, also lets Agag the king live. Uh, We have the very powerful statement by Shmuel when he responds to King Saul, where he says, (laughs) Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obedience to the Lord command which fits in perfectly with what we're going to be talking about today surely obedience is better than sacrifice compliance than the fat of rams and then you have a dramatic exchange where Shmuel uh, turns around to leave. Saul grabs Shmuel's uh, corner of Shmuel's robe, and it tears. And Shmuel says to him that on this day, God has torn the kingship of Israel away from you and given it to someone who is worthy. So very powerful uh, narrative that this is based off of, that again, we have an explicit affirmation in this narrative where Shmuel tells Shaul, surely just... Just following what God tells you to do is better than you going off and doing other things in additional because you think this is what God wants. And also because King Saul operated as he did, he was no longer deemed competent or fit to serve as the political leader of the Jewish people in the form of a king. And note that, going back to the Midrash, the idiom that's used here is, Al harbei yuter mi don't be more righteous than your creator. There's an idiom that people would throw out in uh, yeshiva, at least certain yeshiva groups, called someone being firmer than God, someone being more religious, more observant than God. And here you have a Midrash that says very explicitly, yeah, don't do that. To elaborate on this point, Rafuna and Rabbi Benaiah say as follows: "Hitchil midayinhu kineged boro, that Saul began to, the liberator cast judgment against God. Ve'amar and he said, 'Kach amar kadosh this is what God said: Lech kita et go and smite amalek. Imanashim chatau, hanashim machatau, if the men sinned. Then what about the women? How did they sin? The hataf mechata'u. And the children? How did they sin? The habakar vishor vichamor mechata'u. And the cattle, and etc. And the donkeys and oxen, how did they sin? Here we have inserted into King Saul's mouth an ethical argument where he says, well, God might have told me to do this, but this seems unjust. After all it seems that God is telling me to kill living beings who don't deserve it. And on here, Yatsat Batkolva Amra Altihitza Dikarbeyoterbi Mibora Echa. And here this divine echo comes out and says don't be more righteous than your creator. The Midrash continues with another example, this time in the name of Rabbanan and the sages. (inaudible) Hidhil Midayen Keneged Egla Arufa, that he also was arguing against uh, the commandment of the Egla Arufa. This is the heifer whose name is broken. This is what happens when someone is murdered between two towns and you kill a heifer as a means of atonement as uh, is described in Dvarim Deuteronomy chapter 21. So hu horeg vihi ne'erefet. Sha'ul, King Saul argued, one person kills, a man sinned, but this animal is the one who's broken. Imadam chata behema mechata'a. If man sinned, what sin did this animal do? and so the echo comes out and says, do not be overly righteous. In theory, I should point out, you could extend this logic to any form of sacrifice. There are different animal sacrifices that are specifically meant to atone. You can say that applies to, well, pretty much everything there. And here, again, you can say that there is an ethical argument that's going on behind it, meaning it's not just all being um, angry with God for one reason or another. He's saying, this seems unjust, and my ethical principles would appear to supersede what God is telling me to do. And here is a counterforce against that that says, yeah, don't be overly righteous, because ultimately what matters is being obedient to God. And if God says, I want you to do X explicitly, well then, yeah, you're supposed to do that. Before we continue any further, it's worth pointing out that this could have some very bad consequences, especially in today's day and age. Uh, Very briefly, we'll discuss that you don't have, at least in the rabbinic tradition, uh, prophecy, and in some cases, a divine spirit that would still have revelations that you can say, God spoke to me, because you could always ask, Well, how do you know God's the one who's actually speaking to you and it's not just some psychotic break that you're experiencing? Part of the Jewish tradition of faith is that the Torah represents divine will and. It minimally, you know, some form of divine inspiration that this is God speaking and he, God did speak to people, and this is the recordings of what God actually said to them. Um, but today, we don't really have that. And there was a line that used to be that if you sp- prayed, if you speak to God, you're righteous. If God speaks to you, you're crazy. And today, I think there's a very warranted skepticism over not relying on these things because we have absolutely no idea. And as for the rest, it's not that there haven't been some adjustments to Jewish law from what's purely written in the Bible, but we do have the rules uh, that are detailed in rabbinic Judaism, meaning if you want to appeal to the rabbinic interpretive tradition, you would also have to follow the rules of how such interpretation works, how legislation works. Uh, Again, the rabbinic tradition is not just, hey, we're going to interpret new things as we see fit. There was still a process behind it such that you can't just take a verse and say here's what i think it means and that all of a sudden becomes halacha meaning if you're going to accept the institution of rabbinic interpretation you would also have to play by the rules that the rabbis established for how such interpretation works in any event going back here this is as clear of a statement as you'll find in rabbinic literature that is an admonishing of do not put your own moral principles ahead of what God tells you to do, which on one hand can be very challenging for many people, but you can look at it the other way. Almost any position that someone takes can be justified or rationalized on some moral grounds. Um, as you know, Shakespeare said, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It doesn't take much or casuistry to justify whatever it is that you want to do in the name of some moral rule or moral principle. And once you go down that road, you get very, very quickly into everyone does right in their own eyes. And reading from the end of the book of Judges, that really doesn't end well. So in this first part of the Midrash, we have, again, a very explicit statement that God's will comes first more than your sense of righteousness or morality because just because you think that this might be moral, that might, necessar- not, might not necessarily be the case. Nidrish continues with an example of this, where Rosham Bing Lakish says, Kol asa bimkom achzari, sov shena'asa achzari bimkom rachman. This is often colloquially translated as whoever is kind to the cruel at the end is going to be cruel to the kind, in the right measure, of course. Asa kum Rahman, and how do we know that this happens? Uh, The example that's given here is also from King Saul. After he was merciful to Agag and to Amalek, fast forward a couple of chapters to Shmuel Aleph, 1 Samuel chapter 22, he destroys the city of Nov that was full of priests. Furthermore, Rabbanan Amarin, Kol asar whoever is kind to the cruel or kind contrary should be cruel. Sof shemidat hadin pogaatpo. In the end, the attribute of justice is going to afflict him or overtake him. Shne as it says by Shaul, v'yamach. Excuse me, it says by Shaul in chapter thirty-one of Shmuel Aleph, v'yamach Shaul u'shlochet Fanav, that he died, and so did his three sons. And this is such an important principle when you find people talking about having compassion. As I have observed just anecdotally as people talk about things, you don't really have people who are compassionate. Well, maybe the possible exception of the Dalai Lama, whose entire religion and worldview is based on compassion towards all beings, as much as you have people who are compassionate to those they feel are worthy of compassion, for whom they feel they have empathy uh, in some way, and explicitly denied for those who don't, in a sense... Instead of, oh, if we're more empathetic, we're going to be less judgmental. I think first we're judgmental and then we decide if the person is worthy of empathy or not. Um, But you do see how you know, easily this idea of compassion and kindness can be abused if you're directing it to not just someone who's unworthy of it, but someone who's wicked. Because as you show compassion to someone who's wicked, well, you're just going to be perpetuating more wickedness. And as much as you say, oh, we should be compassionate towards someone, eh, you're really causing a lot more harm than good. Unfortunately, how we go about finding this calculus between you know is this uh, time for mercy or time for not is usually reflective of our own biases where again just as we can rationalize anything in morality we can rationalize who's deserving of compassion and who isn't um, what I think makes things more challenging is when people say in very general terms, oh, we should be compassionate as if we're appealing to a grand universal ethic that almost no one is going to apply 100% consistently, and instead we wind up weaponizing compassion instead of saying, well, I think this person deserves it for such and such a reason, or I think this person doesn't for such and such a reason, which would obviously be a much more honest conversation to have, but since when do we get those? Anyway, thank you for listening to this one. Uh, Again, it's a bit long, especially for a bonus, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what I think is a very important midrash. What do you think is the point of this midrash? Please feel free to send me your thoughts. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Juter. You can also find me on Facebook and send me an email via my website, www.joshuder.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great week and a Chag Sameach.